Well, hello everybody. It is so good to see you. Uh, my name is David Morrow and uh, just a quick update for you. Our brother Greg was supposed to be here teaching this morning and uh, was once again... Um, encountered by the demonic spirit the spirit that is kidney stones. So be praying for Brother Greg. Uh, he's fine. He'll be back. Uh, he does not have coronavirus, so praise God. Uh, but I'm excited to share a little bit with you today. And here's the thing. Before we dive in, I do just want to encourage you real quick. You've got maybe five or ten more minutes to just send in any, um, like, for, especially for the adults, any words, any sentences, any phrases, any anything that you are missing, anything that you you are lamenting in this series of coronavirus. You can send it in to the number that's on the screen and uh, hopefully that'll be apparent why in a few minutes. Um, So the title of this message is Hitting the Wall. Because if you are anything like me, some of you have been hitting the wall in this season. And now, for me, what hitting the wall looks like in our family is like, for instance, my my daughter, uh, she has been writing a musical. It is called Quarantine the Musical. And it, for real, it has a lot of numbers to it. And there, there is a number that has been written for each member of our family. And the one that specifically was written for her loving father is called Daddy in the Bathroom. And the reason why it's called Daddy in the Bathroom is because when you are an introvert during quarantine, what you long more than anything else is for social distancing to end so you can finally be alone. But if you can't be alone, the only place you are going to find solace is in the locked door behind the bathroom. And oftentimes that means playing much more Candy Crush than you should. And so my daughter decided to mark this moment in history by creating a song based on her father's desire to just exit the reality that is social distancing. And maybe for some of you, what it feels like to hit the wall is, I wonder when my laundry will be more than just sweatpants. Like, I wonder what it'll be like, uh, like when, when we can all get normal looking haircuts. I wonder what it'll be like when we are not dreading the next Zoom invite we get. Because underneath all of it, there is just this like gnawing anxiety of the unknown of what is going to happen next. How are we going to manage it? And the best way I could think about to visualize what this experience of hitting the wall during this time has meant is this, uh, this painting by Edvard Munch. It's called The Scream. It was painted in 1893, and one of the uh, versions of it sold at auction for $120 million. So if you have that and you're watching... Give. That would be wonderful. We would love for you to be a part of our community here. Uh, But they're going to put this image up on the screen, and I want you to take a look at it because I think it gives a visual of what hitting the wall feels like. Like some of us just have our hands to our face and our mouths open, wondering, is this going to end? I think one of the things you can visualize in this image is that the man in the foreground is doing the original social distancing with those in the background, but even more so, this is representing both the beauty 
and terror of nature. Because originally this painting was called, not the scream, it was called the scream of nature. Because the man in the foreground, you can see how his body is kind of waving similarly to the nature behind him. Because it's supposed to represent the fact that we can't avoid the terror of nature sometimes. Anybody feel like we're sitting in the midst of the terror of nature right now? Like, there's this beauty, like I'm seeing more and more Instagram posts of us, nobody's going anywhere, so we're all experiencing spring every second of it. And so there's this beauty in it, but there's also just this terror of it that there is this unknown reality in the natural world that we're afraid of. Now, th- this painting has also had a lot of parodies to it. I think my favorite parody was from the movie Home Alone, where Kevin McAllister, the main character in it, uh, did his own scream impression, and, uh, which I, I just kind of think is cute, but is a good reminder that like, all of us experience this in one way or another, and I think this painting is representative of our cultural moment in some very profound ways. Because all of our attempts to avoid the way we are interdependent with the created world have been shut down. We can't escape the reality of what it feels like to be susceptible. All the normal coping mechanisms have fallen short. And so the question that I want us to talk about this morning is this. How do we get from this scream of anxiety the scream of loneliness, the scream of frustration, the scream of uncertainty and fear. How do we get from that place to hope? Do you guys remember hope? Two months ago, I remember hope. And now it feels more and more like I'm not sure what is the next thing to hope for. Can I plan for the next vacation? Can I plan for the next adventure? What what is school going to look like in the fall? What, What do we hope for as we look forward? And this uncertainty that so many of us are experiencing right now is this uncertainty of the in between. Like, it's like being in a doorway where you have walked out of a room but you have not yet walked into the next one. It's, you're standing in this place where I I think I knew what it felt like back there, but I don't quite know what it feels like going forward. And and, and theologians and, and individuals working in the area of spiritual formation in particular have defined this in between space as liminal space. Here's how Richard Rohr defines that. He says, liminal space or the place of waiting is a unique spiritual position where human beings hate to be, but where the biblical God is always leading them. It is when you have left the tried and true, but you have not yet been able to replace it with anything else. It's when you're finally out of the way. It's when you are between your old comfort zone and any possible new answer. If you are not trained in how to hold anxiety, how to live with ambiguity, how to entrust and wait, you will run. Anything to flee this terrible cloud of unknowing. Anybody feel that way right now? 
And I think one of the pieces of solace I take in this is that the early church has been navigating these liminal spaces for a long time. The church started out in a liminal space that as Jesus ascended when, when he left and the disciples were sitting in the room waiting for the Spirit to come. They sat in this liminal space, very similar to what we're sitting in, wondering what is happening right now? What do I do with this in-between space? What do I do with this, this threshold spot, this spot in the middle of a doorway where I don't know yet what to expect? And I think just... As a brief aside for us as a community, for us as a church, both small C, Woodland Hills Church, and big C, wherever you're watching this, while there is this ambiguity, there is also this immense potential because it is in these experiences of communal liminality, of which we have not had many of them, that God has a track record of doing incredible work. Look at how Michael Frost defines this in the book Exiles. He says, when we seek to build community without the experience of liminality, all we end up with is a kind of pseudo-community that pervades many churches. And I wonder, I just wonder what this season might bring for us as a community as a church, because we have been convinced around here for years at Woodland Hills that this room that I am in right now and you are not in, this is not the church. That you all are the church. That the kingdom has always been more than this place. And now we are being forced to sit in the in-between that we have to actually remember what the church is all about. That it's never been this building. That it's always about you and me and us trying to walk this out together. But the reality is we don't know what that means. We don't know what it means a month from now, two months from now, three months from now. We don't know when, when we all get to gather again here together. And so we sit in this liminal space and my prayer for us and my pleading for you is that you would be praying with us and saying, God, where are you bringing us? Because it is in these in-between times that God has done some of his most profound work throughout history. Whether it was Israel in the wilderness when they left Egypt but had not yet come to the promised land and God did incredible work in their life. But it's not easy. I think we all are experiencing that right now. That liminal spaces feel like exile our own exile during this time, in many ways, is just reinforcing what should always be our mindset as kingdom people, that we have always been a people defined by exile. Or if we are not actually defined by it, we should be because we have always been a people living in between the coming of Christ the first time and the coming of Christ the second time. That in many ways, this exile of liminality we are sitting in is a reminder that as we are pushed to the periphery of society, that is where the kingdom and the church has done some of its best work historically. And I wonder how the Spirit will lead us going forward in that. 
And so, as we dive further into this question of what does exile look like, I want to give a little background for the main text we're going to be looking at today. And it's uh, looking at both the book of Jeremiah, but also Jeremiah's letter called Lamentations. And these books were written around the time that Israel was going into exile to Babylon. And so, the, the Israelites had had trouble following God, and they weren't able to live out the calling of what it meant to be a covenant people, and so they went into exile to Babylon, and it is in this exile in the Old Testament that the people are confronted, the Israelites are confronted with, how do we live in this new space? How do we live in this liminal space, in this threshold spot? Because while there is potential for God to do amazing things in this place and time, there are also incredible temptations to avoid it, are there not? I think many of us experience those temptations. And Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 29, 1 through 10, which we're not going to put up, but if you have your Bible in front of you, feel free to open that up. But Jeremiah talks about two temptations that the people of Israel faced when they were in exile. And the first temptation that they faced was the temptation to withdraw from the world. And for them, this looked like, like, should we engage with this culture? Should we connect with this new place that we are in? And yet, the context that, that we are sitting in is that our temptation to withdraw is much more connected with a temptation to numb. Where are the places where rather than experiencing the depths of what is happening right now in our culture, we're numbing? Some of us numb through positivity. It's all going to be fine. It'll be over quick. No problem. Some of us numb through social media. We just zone in. Has anybody else had the alerts pop up on their phone with the amount of extra screen time you have had recently? I know I have. Some of us numb through binge watching. Some of us numb through addictive behaviors. And so on the one hand, we have this temptation to withdraw and to numb. But Jeremiah also points out a second temptation that the Israelites had. And it was a temptation to return to idolatry. And the way that I would define what idolatry was for them that connects with us is it's a temptation to look for hope in the wrong places. And many of us have so many temptations to, like we're just drawn to simple fixes to complex issues. And this is a across the board issue, right? This is not a one side of the aisle temptation within our current uh, reality. That You may have some on one side of the aisle saying, well, the simple cure is going to be to just minimize all the issues and come up with magical potions that are going to somehow solve coronavirus. Whereas maybe on the other side of the aisle, you have people saying, well, if we just make sure everybody has a $1,200 check, it'll be fine. To which many of us would say, that didn't even scratch the surface of the problem. And so while we are navigating, like just trying to do something to make this all better, I think underneath that is this temptation to solve a complex problem with very, very simple solutions. And the issue is, as we're watching the news, the, like, the problem is there are thousands of ideas of how this is going to get solved, and somebody's right, but nobody knows which person. <laughs> that it is completely uncertain, and so any temptation to grasp what the right answer is, is just like trying to grasp the air. <laughs> and it feels good to try and do that, but the problem is it's a temptation to avoid the gift of liminality. <laughs> 
the gift of this in-between space because when we are able to, and I'm not saying it's easy, but when we are able to reject the dual temptations to withdraw and numb on the one hand, and the other temptation to just listen to simple answers to complex problems. When we can reject those, we are given the opportunity of a kingdom third way. And this is a third way that we see in the book of Lamentations. It's this third way called lament. Because when we find ourselves in a doorway space, in a liminal space, we have this opportunity to not just stop in the exile, but I think God is calling us beyond the exile to lament. And when we talk about lament, the way that I define it is that it's an anguished and honest cry to God for what is broken and what has been lost. And if you're not sure where the book of Lamentations is, I would encourage you to use your table of contents if you have your Bible with you. It's not cheating. Uh, but if you found the book of Jeremiah, just hang a right. It's right after the book of Jeremiah. But here is how Lamentations starts. And see if you notice any connection with our own experience in Lamentations 1.1. How deserted and lonely lies the city that once was full of people. How like a widow she has become, she that was great among the nations. Particularly for those of us that are in a larger city context, how many of you feel like there has been a death in the city? Like, Lamentations, among many things, is a funeral service for the death of a city. The city Jeremiah is talking about is Jerusalem, the center of where God resided for the people of God. And so when this city gets destroyed and the temple gets burned, they're wrestling with the reality of how do we mourn and how do we have a funeral service for a city. And so he laments in the midst of this context of a city that has been destroyed. And there are so many parts of his lament that I think tie in with our own. Like later on in the book of Lamentations, in Lamentations 3.17, Jeremiah says, My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. Which I don't quite know the exact context for that verse, but I am convinced that if somebody were writing a lament right now and had that verse, it would be specifically intended for those of you with children under the age of five who have been quarantined for two months. That some of us, you, thankfully my youngest is seven, praise Jesus, um, but some of you with toddlers and infants have forgotten what happiness is. I know it. I've talked to you. It is real. It is an incredible pain. It is so just exhausting and time-consuming and overwhelming. Or, or maybe some of you um, connect with Lamentations 5.8, where Jeremiah says, we get bread at peril for our lives. How many of you have had a bit of a, like, uh, an anxious reaction walking into a grocery store? Or may maybe for some of our communities that work in a grocery store, we want to say thank you so much for the work you are doing. And, and yet, also just recognize that the lament of Jeremiah 2,500 years ago is not too different from our own, right? And while the content of a lament 
and Jeremiah's lament in particular, has some connection with our own. I think what's most interesting about the book of Lamentations is not so much the content, but the form that Jeremiah uses. Because when the book of Lamentations was written, it was written in this form called an acrostic. And what this means is that every verse in each chapter is one Hebrew letter after the next Hebrew letter is how it starts. And they're going to put an image up on the screen to kind of visualize this. But the way it works is that there are 22 verses in chapters 1, 2, 4, and 5. And in chapters 1, 2, and 4, the way it works is each verse starts with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So the first verse starts with the Hebrew, the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and then the second letter, and the third letter, and the fourth letter, all down through all 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And, and Jeremiah uses this, this poetic tool in order to both help with like memorizing and remembering in a culture that did not have the written text available to them. But I think he's using it for even a deeper purpose. And I think the reason why Jeremiah uses this tool of an acrostic is to guarantee that the grief and the despair are expressed completely. That he's, it forces us to walk fully through our pain. That we don't get to say, well, yeah, this happened and this happened, but gosh, then it was fine. No, you only got to B. Like, you need to get all the way from A to Z to fully walk through what hurts. Because it pushes back against our temptation to make light of to gloss over, to put a positive spin on, to find shortcuts. The structure itself forces us to walk out the hurt. And we are not very practiced at this. And this is something that we have something incredible we can learn from our Jewish brothers and sisters who have an annual festival called Tisha B'Av that is a reminder to lament, a reminder to mourn for what has been lost. It's a time where, where the Jewish community will mourn over the destruction of the temples, a time to mourn over the ravaging of the Jewish community during the Crusades, a time to mourn over the Holocaust. And, and I wonder what might this time feel like if we had built up some muscles to lament over the years. So I wonder, what are you lamenting about right now? Where's it hurt? Where's the grief? I know what I'm lamenting right now, and I have a number of them. The first thing I'm lamenting, and, and you might think this sounds trite, um, but I'm going to get into it, so I'll fully explain it. But one of the things I'm lamenting is Twins games. And this is, I mean, you might say, oh, get over it, David, and I won't. But here's the thing. There is a place in the right field corner of Target Field, the Minnesota Twins Stadium, and it is a place worthy of pilgrimage. It is called the Red Cow Food Stand. And here's how the Red Cow Food Stand works. You walk up to the Red Cow Food Stand, and they, 
I love them, but they ask you the dumbest possible question they could. They say, do you want one 60-40 burger, which is 60% beef, 40% bacon, or do you want two 60-40 burgers? And always you say, I want two. And then they give you the candied bacon on top, and then they grill the buns, and then before they hand you this masterpiece, they say, do you want the spicy mustard? And you say, of course I want the spicy mustard. And then you walk it back to your seat, and you don't share it with your children because it's too good for them. Give them the dollar dog. But honestly, I miss it. I miss getting to do some of those things that are representative of this season, and I lament it. And I also lament small group on Zoom. It's not fun. (laughs) Sorry, small group who might be watching this. Um, I lament that I love planning family trips and that I've just spent the last couple months canceling one thing after another thing after another thing. I I lament that during this time my grandpa turned 103 and we couldn't celebrate with him. I lament that I had to cancel going on a Sankofa trip a couple weeks ago to do a pilgrimage through the civil rights memorials in the South. I lament the experience of those that I work with in the homeless community who, during this time, have been reminded over and over while everybody else is being told, stay at home, and they look around going, where's my home? I don't have a home. And so I lament their experience of just one more time feeling like they're on the outside looking in. I lament my kids missing their friends and their activities. I I lament the death of some in our community here at Woodland Hills who we have not been able to celebrate and remember and mourn with their families the way we normally have. I I lament my, my friend's experience whose mom died recently. I lament the experience of my nephew who's a senior in high school. And even though we're all trying the best we can to remember their experience and to acknowledge that this is strange, that I I lament that when I talk with him about it, he says, you know, David, there's nothing that you guys can do to make this okay. I lament that COVID-19 is, among many things, just reinforcing the racial inequality in our community and in our state, and in our nation. And while Lamentations 1 through 4, it's interesting because these four chapters are personal. All the pronouns are, pronouns are about Jeremiah saying, my lament, what I'm going through. It's in Lamentations 5 that there's a shift in the language. And, and Jeremiah shifts the language to we and us. Because lament, it can start with a personal lament, but it ultimately needs to get communal. And this is where I want to invite us to hold some space together for a communal lament. So listen to this song, and we're going to take a look at our laments for our community. Only my strength 
I know you've got your question, but I'm closer than you think. I promise. I promise. And oh, I won't let go. I won't let go. I see you right where you are. And I'm holding on to your heart. No, community the revelation that we get of the God in Jesus in scripture is a God who says I can't necessarily always fully help you understand the why 
but I'm going to be there with you. I'm never going to leave you or forsake you. So thank you so much for sending in what you miss, what's been lost. And the challenge of this time is that as we sit in this liminal space and we experience exile and we walk out our lament, we could stop at lament. But God calls us beyond lament to this place called hope. And now, before we dive into hope, I want to just say one thing, that the problem oftentimes that comes with hope is when we put our hope in some place where it does not belong. Because when we start placing our hope in in areas of misplaced hope, we start to believe that we can't hope anymore. Because when we start convincing ourselves that the hope can't actually bring anything, then it forces us to stop hoping. Lamentations 4.17 shows the hope that the Jewish people had. It says, Our eyes failed, ever watching vainly for help. We were watching eagerly for a nation that could not save. And so one of our tasks as kingdom people is to remember that our hope never comes from something we see in this world right now. Our hope never comes from our government. Our hope never comes from institutions around us right now. Our hope never comes from financial security. That all of our hope needs to be fixed on the person of Jesus. I love the way Pastor John Mark Comer defines hope. He says it's an absolute expectation of coming good based on the person and promises of God. That our hope, the trajectory of our hope, needs to be over the horizon of the coronavirus. That the trajectory of our hope needs to be above anything else that we see in this world and be focused on the person of Jesus because when our hope is there, nothing can touch it. Nothing can get in the way of that hope. No sleepless night, no unemployment, no global pandemic, no homeschooling, no financial meltdown. The hope that Jesus brings does not get touched by that because it is over the horizon of all those other areas where we place our hope. And so... Not only does this tool and this form of an acrostic and lamentations help us walk fully through our lament, but it actually insists that at some point the lament needs to stop. Because at some point you're going to get to the end of the alphabet. And at that point, we are going to be reminded what Eugene Peterson says when he says, there comes a time when either life ends or suffering ends. The subjective feeling of endlessness in suffering is in fact false. The poet Rilke says it this way, no feeling is final. There comes an end. But hope does not mean pretending there are no problems. It doesn't necessarily even mean the problems go away. It's not pretending, but it's an intentional act to push against our tendency to avoid hope for fear of disappointment. We are going to not be naive. We are going to not be stupid. But we are also going to live as people that actually have hope. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in 1 Thessalonians 4.13 when he says, Brothers and sisters, we don't want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest who have 
no hope. So there is hope, not only after, but in the midst of lament. It's one of my favorite parts of the book of Lamentations because Lamentations doesn't, it's not just one big lament that hidden right in the middle of Lamentations is this breathtaking picture of hope. In Lamentations 3, 22 through 25, it says this, Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And this is a covenant faithfulness. This is rooted in the character and the person of God. And then Jeremiah is like spurring himself on and says, I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will wait for him. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him. Nowhere else. Whose hope is in him. To the one who seeks him. And when our hope is there, it cannot be touched by any of the external circumstances we're dealing with right now. So, Woodland Hills, we are a people that are going to choose to acknowledge this liminal space we are sitting in right now to experience the exile, to express it fully in lament, and to remember that hope follows lament. It doesn't replace it. We don't get to skip the lament. But hope does come. So, as we close, I want to read a benediction over you, and it's a blessing uh, written by a woman named Jan Richardson. And if you are able to, in a quiet house, feel free to put your hands out and just receive this blessing. If you have loud kids around you, just crank the volume up. Uh, At some point, uh, they'll get the hint. So receive this blessing today. Here's what it says from God to you. I know how your mind rushes ahead trying to fathom what could follow this. What will you do? Where will you go? How will you live? You will want to outrun the grief. You will want to keep turning toward the horizon, watching for what was lost to come back and return to you and never leave again. And for now, hear me when I say, all you need to do is to turn toward one another, is to stay wait and see what comes to fill that gaping hole in your chest. Wait with your hands open to receive what could never come except to what is empty and hollow. You cannot know it now. You cannot even imagine what lies ahead. But I tell you, the day is coming. The day is coming when breath will fill your lungs as it never has before and with your own ears you will hear words coming to you new and startling. You will dream dreams. You will see the world ablaze with blessing. Wait for it. Still yourself and stay. Woodland Hills, I love you. Hope you have a great Sunday. Thank you for being with us and God bless you. Thank you, David, for that word. It was timely, it was encouraging, and it was, I, it, 
it was just what we needed to hear. So thank you so much for that. And you guys, there is no better hope than to put our hope into Jesus. Um, it's a hope that will never, never, ever fail us. So thank you for being here with us today. Thank you for sending in those things that you missed, those things that you were lamenting. Uh, it blessed us to be able to uh, see those. We want to remind you, if you have a prayer need, that you can go into Zoom and um, have prayer with some of our prayer ministers there. We've been fortunate enough to be able to pray for people who are um, first responders, people working on the front lines of the, during this time, and it's been really great. So if you want to hop onto Zoom, though, there will be people there in rooms to pray with you. Uh, you don't have to carry what you're carrying alone. We're happy to partner with you in prayer. We have had a wonderful time over the last couple of weeks in our gathering groups, and it has been really cool to make connections with people all over the world. And so if you're a part of that, we'll see you next week. If you're not a part of that and you want to be, absolutely just hop on. Uh, you can find details about that on our website. And we will see you on Tuesday afternoon for the MuseCast where we get the privilege of diving a little deeper into David's message um, and just talking about some things that stood out. If you have questions about uh, his message or things you want us to discuss, you can send those in as well. You guys be blessed. Seniors, don't forget to send in your pictures. We want to honor you. Have a wonderful day, you guys. We love you. We miss you. We are so thankful for you. Take care.